Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for the third installment of our new bi-weekly podcast and video series, From Dialogues. David's a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy in politics. In today's episode, we're discussing the big news in Canada, which of course is the ongoing protests in Ottawa and the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act. Thank you for joining me, David. What a pleasure to be back. Let's start big picture. There's uh, Parliamentarians are debating the motion invoking the Emergencies Act as we speak. There has been a, a lot of controversy and, and, and arguments on both sides of this issue. Maybe we'll, I'll just have you reflect on uh, where we currently stand and what has gotten us to a place where protests that have now persisted for nearly three weeks have caused uh, the government to take such extraordinary action. Well, I want to say one thing broadly supportive of what the federal government has done, and then one thing pointedly critical. Um, Here's the supportive thing. There are some questions about whether it was necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. After all, the Ambassador Bridge was cleared before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. A lot of the problems in Ottawa seem to have been the result of uh, mistakes by the Ottawa police force that maybe firmer leadership of the Ottawa police force would have been sufficient to correct. And so there's a question, why invoke the Emergencies Act? And especially some of the financial provisions that um, sequester the funds that uh, look like they are supporting now illegal activities. I I have been supportive of the Emergencies Act because I think that there was a breakdown of clarity of authority in Ottawa. That's very dangerous for any society. And so when the government reasserts its authority, it needs to do so in a way that is very clear, that leaves no room for doubt about how society is governed. And that if you think you can become, as some of the uh, protesters thought, you can become part of the government by mobilizing supporters and acting with force, that you get like you're not just a citizen expressing their constitutional and human right to protest and voice views, but somehow you can muscle your way into actual political power without an election. That needs to be clearly dealt with. And so the government had to reassert its authority in a vigorous way. The Emergencies Act offered carefully calibrated ways to do that in a way that didn't exist back in 1970 when the elder Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act, a much more draconian piece of legislation. So that's the supportive thing. Here's the critical thing. Opponents of the government have said, and they are right, that the the prelude to a lot of what happened in Ottawa was a year and a half where through 2020, there were increasingly 
intimidating acts of interruption of essential services, pipelines and rail by other kinds of protesters farther from urban Canada. And the federal government of Pierre Trudeau, or sorry, Justin Trudeau, largely looked the other way. And that set the table for what has happened here. And I, I think that's that's right. There, there are important differences between the pipeline closures and uh, the railway stoppages and the blockade in Ottawa. And the most important was there was no lack of authority. No one ever doubted that the government could have suppressed those protests had it wished to. It just didn't wish to. It just or didn't want to take the political heat for doing so. Whereas in Ottawa, there was a real question about the capacity of government. So you didn't need an Emergencies Act with these other demonstrations to bring them to a lawful close. But you needed to do something, and that something was not done. There have been people who have said in attacking what the government is doing from a more liberal point of view that, well, wait a moment, if they crack down so harshly on these uh, protests who have seized Ottawa and tried to shut down the Ambassador Bridge, they might do so in the future to people doing the same to pipelines and rails. And from my point of view, that's a feature, not a bug, that protest is important. It's a precious right. We talked about this last time. But there's a reason there's a plaza in front of City Hall. That's where you do it. And you don't do it by attacking essential services. It's a reminder, of course, David, that, well, at times the notions of the rule of law can seem like an abstraction, that they can come to uh, reflect quite concrete terms in a situation like the one playing out in Ottawa. You mentioned that there's a degree of hypocrisy on both sides of the political spectrum in the current context. We have the political left, which has generally been supportive of blockade actions at railways and, and gas pipelines shifting its position, and the right shifting its position in the opposite direction, and in large part in support of the protests in Ottawa. How much of the current situation should be understood as an exercise in effective polarization between Canada's left and right? Well, when you know that people are caught offside in these ways, the point should not be just to score a point, you're a hypocrite. We all have commitments, and we all, obviously, we all adjust the balance a little bit in our own personal, ideological, ethical favor. So that's not a surprise. The, the power of discovering that you're offside in this way is not to score a point off somebody and say, you were hypocritical, you backed rail blockades, now you oppose truck blockades or vice versa. The point is to learn from our own conflicts. So I think one of the things that could come out of this that would be good is if people who are sympathetic to the truck protests learned a little more respect for the importance of the right of protest in a democratic society and understood, you know, that it's not just anarchy when people who have different views make their views known at pipelines or at railways. That That's permissible, just in the way that these truck protests could have been permissible. And in the same way, people um, who are supportive of those protests of 1970, those, of 2020, those blockages, need to understand just as there's a limit, so there's a limit when the grievances are grievances you're sympathetic to. And I think for all of us, I think all of this comes down to some actual rules of law that were written in the days when strike actions were more common than they are now, which is there's a right to withdraw labor, there's a right to picket. There's a right to communicate your views and to try to mobilize other people to support you. But you cannot, by violence, actually close access to the place of work. You can't do that. People have a right to move to and fro. That place of work, they, the picket line has to allow them through. That's the law. And in the same way that um, if you're protesting a pipeline, ultimately you cannot physically, by intimidation or violence, stop the pipeline. And in the same way with the bridge, in the same way with the nation's capital. One thing that struck me about about the debates around these issues in recent weeks 
is the potential signal that it sends that the Canadian right has come to reconcile itself with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, of course, is uh, will have its 40th anniversary of effectuation in, in March. We've seen Canadian conservatives invoke the charter in a way that, that it hasn't um, necessarily in the past. I want to pick up something that you wrote about the trucker protests. In Can recently. I say something about, about the trucker? Because I am old enough that I was actually conscious, politically aware during the debates over the charter. And I had a lot of qualms about it in 1982. And, and I still do. And the qualm is not that it's not important to protect rights. It's that grafting judicial review onto a parliamentary system creates some pretty it, – it, it doesn't quite work. And what we have seen since 1982 in Canada and now in Britain, because Britain has also gone through this judicialization, that those who warned this is a, a, going to be an uncomfortable graft were correct. We have seen in all of these places, in all these parliamentary countries, a decline in the importance and power of parliaments. That's just what we worried about. Now, maybe it's worth it. Um, maybe the results are better. And maybe Parliament no longer commanded people's respect and affection in a way that once upon a time it did. But there's a quote from one of Tony Blair's associates. I think it was Peter Mandelson, I may be wrong, who said it when uh, Britain began adopting these judicial reforms, the age of representative government is coming to an end. And, or the age of representative democracy, he said, is coming to an end. And what he, what he meant by that was not that democracy is coming to an end or that representation is coming to an end. But there was a time when people thought the way to protect their rights was through representation. But parliament was the place where rights were protected. And because, and be, both cause and effect of the charter and similar laws in Britain and Australia, I assume, has, has the same, and New Zealand, I assume, has the same, that people look to their representative institutions less than they used to do. And- that's a change, maybe a loss, but certainly an evolution that hasn't been altogether easy. It's a sign that we ought to take this issue back up again, David, more directly in the lead up to the 40th anniversary. As I was saying, I, I'd just like you to reflect on something you recently wrote in The Atlantic about the trucker protests. You, you talked about the extent to which the internet and social media is enabling the globalization of protest movements, uh, that the tendency towards protest is transcended national borders. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, that idea and what you think it means, not just for Canada, but for other Western democracies who are watching what's occurring in Ottawa? Well, I hope memory isn't playing me false here, but I, as I remember it, and I may have this story wrong, the newly elected Brian Mulroney in about 1984 went down on his first big trip to New York and he got an interview on the Today Show. And if I remember right, he complained, look, Canada is the United States' nearest neighbor, most important trading partner, closest ally. What do we have to do to get American attention? And in some ways, this is all Mulroon, the revenge on Mulroney's question. Okay, you want to know this? I mean, you've got now Elon Musk comparing Justin Trudeau to Adolf Hitler. And I, one of the things I really resent about this whole escapade is I've been a profound non-fan of two generations of the Trudeau family. And the idea that, you know, I think Justin Trudeau has been indecisive and vacillating and weak and I think through this crisis. And I think in 2020, he gave a green light to people to do things and set in motion. Uh, and he's played culture war politics himself in a way that uh, has worsened the climate. Okay, got that. And now Elon Musk says it's like Nazi Germany. Oh, grow up. And so I, I really resent being put in a position where I have to, you know, <laughs> I have to say, you know, if, if you think this is oppression, well, congratulations to you on your comfortable life where you have lost the ability even to imagine 
what it would be like to live in an unfree society. You mentioned the interest in the United States. I've been struck that the protest movement has been on the front page of major dailies like the Wall Street Journal. It's led cable news programs like Fox News popular show hosted by Tucker Carlson. What are we to make of American interest in these protests? Has Canadian politics been swallowed up into uh, the American culture war? Well, well, part of this is um, it's easier to say things that aren't true about places that are far away and that people don't know. So if you want to argue that if you, if you want to score points with anti-vaxxers, there are limits to what you can say about the effects of vaccine mandates in the United States because people to an American audience, they live in the United States and they can tell what is true and what is false. So if you want to create a situation where vaccine mandates lead to totalitarian night, Australia is a good place to talk about because they don't live in Australia and uh, and they are getting their information about Australia from the same kind of biased um, social media sources. So you can tell them all kinds of things. And in the same way, you can say these things about, about Canada and make it seem like all kinds of wild things are happening there that are, are not. I mean, you can make it seem like it's an outrageous and incredible thing that governments would acquire authority to tell banks to examine suspicious transactions. Now, in the United States, that's un- under the Patriot Act. Banks have to do that. If they if they become aware of a pattern of suspicious activity, they are obliged to freeze accounts to inform the government. I mean, I think a lot of people are shocked because, because that's done to people not like them or not, because they imagine it being done to people not like them. They therefore say, well, those powers are fine when you're doing it to 9-11 style terrorists. Never occurred to me that it might be done to people who do other kinds of illegal activity. But it's, it's not a unimagined tool in the repertoire of government to say to a bank, you now have a new responsibility. If you get a sense that there might be illegal activity going on in this account, you suspend the account until you investigate. And if you find something, you have to report it. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You've thought and written a lot, David, about the the political mood in the United States, the tendency towards polarization and and increasing deference to extreme voices on on either side of the political spectrum. What do you think about the fact that, you know, roughly 30 percent, one third of Canadians have expressed support or sympathy for the Ottawa protesters? What does it tell us about the current mood of Canadian politics? And have we been wrong to think that some of these broader trends occurring in other societies were somehow going to not manifest themselves in Canada. Well, first it tells you, you always have to be very careful when you read a poll. It's like the old oracles of ancient Greece that you have to be, you have to look when you get the answer, you have to look back. What exactly did I ask? Yes, it's an answer, but it's an answer to precisely the question I asked. And I may have had something different in mind. So if the question is, are you broadly sympathetic? Well, I've been pretty harsh on, on justifying the crackdown against it, but I'm broadly do – I, do I agree that Canada overreacted to Omicron? 
Yeah, I do agree with that. Do I think it's time that social distancing and masking rules come to an end? Yeah, yeah, I do. So I, I me down with the 32%? Well, no, no, because I, I oppose what they're doing, but I'm broadly sympathetic to many of their goals. So understand what people, whenever you see a poll result, you need to read the question and maybe even read it aloud and understand that people who see the world differently from you might hear those same words in a different way than you imagine they heard them. I, I think Canada has been a less polarized society, though, than the United States for a bunch of reasons. One is uh, Canada has had a very well-performing middle class over the past 20 years. And I think a lot, a lot of the sources of polarization come from stress on the social middle and then poor integration of recent newcomers. I think Canada's also generally had a more successful experience with immigration than the United States has had. It's managed it better. And immigrants come from more different places. So when the children of immigrants from two different parts of the world meet in the mall and want to flirt, they have to speak English or French. If they're in Canada, probably English. If they're going to flirt, English is the language of flirting in the next generation. Whereas in, in other societies, in the United States, they will probably flirt in Spanish. And the result of that is not that you preserve Spanish, but you degrade English. Um, and that, that causes all kinds of both troubles and, and reactions. So can't the, the impetus to polarization has been less in Canada. But no, it's, it's not immune. Social media makes it worse. Canada's had one other great safety valve, which is it's a multi-party system. And this is something that I've really had to rethink. And I've, I've been led here very much by the writing of Lee Drutman, which I, I recommend, that it's hard to polarize in a multi-party system because people can, you, you need coalitions and people have more exits. So, you know, the Greens are there, the NDP is there, uh, the Bloc is there. And I think one of the things that has been a check on the Conservative Party of Canada to date, going as far to the right as the Republicans have had, is, is that the Liberals are a less unacceptable choice for many Canadian moderate people than the Democrats are for their counterparts uh, in, the, in the United States. And this is a political danger. I think the Conservatives face coming out of these protests is if they lean too hard, the part of Canada that is very sympathetic to the, to the protests. They will alienate the part of Canada that was comfortable with the Mulroney, was comfortable with the Kim Campbell, but maybe wasn't comfortable with, the, say, a Preston Manning. One idea, David, that's become salient in the context of the pandemic is the notion of state capacity. It's not a judgment on the size of government. It's a commentary on the government's capacity to carry out or functions. And you mentioned this earlier in, in the context of the city of Ottawa's response to the protests. Has this experience, along with others over the course of the pandemic, demonstrated that Canada has something of a state capacity problem? Yeah, I, I, I don't know enough about this to offer a really solid opinion. I want to be careful. And Capacity also is willpower. I mean, with the, with the shutdowns of 2020, I, I don't think there was ever a moment where the RCMP couldn't have dealt with those things. It was that the capacity, the breakdown of capacity was in the people who gave the RCMP their orders, who were frightened to say, we're going to keep the pipeline. Pipelines have to be built. Railways have to operate. We don't, you know, whatever your grievances are, go, go take a placard to city hall. That's the place. Stopping a rail line is not the place. So that if, if you regard willpower as kind of, as an expression of state capacity, maybe that's a capacity problem. There may turn out to be quite a specific problem with the security of bridges that it just it's just utterly unacceptable for those bridges ever to be closed at all period for any reason and there may be particular problems in the city of ottawa that, that if you want to preserve and 
of course you should, the tradition of on foot, on bicycle, friendly policing, minimal weapons, very demilitarized, and you want to apply that to a national capital. There still has to be some force in the background. If the Ottawa police force are on bikes or on foot and being friendly and helping lost tourists and getting the cat out of the tree and um, dealing with domestic problems without arresting people, you know, telling people, you know, can't smoke cigarettes over here. No, you're not under arrest. Just don't put out the cigarette. Um, If you want that kind of Ottawa police force, you need some national capital force that when serious protesters show up can keep order in an effective way and do so from the beginning. Incidents like what happened in Ottawa over the past few weeks are easier to prevent than to undo. That's one of the things we've all discovered. That's right. I I think one of the things that struck me about the past few weeks is the extent to which the lessons of the terrorist attack on Parliament Hill in 2014 clearly weren't learned. They weren't reflected in sufficient changes to law enforcement and law enforcement capacity in and around the parliamentary precinct. And one wonders if that will be a major consequence of of this current experience. One of the questions I've had, I mean, what would have made this all even more complicated problem was what if protesters had tried to shut down the connections, the road connections between Ottawa and Hull? And then there would have been that much more complexity in enforcing. Uh, now, maybe that, that would have triggered the Mounties more clearly. But, you know, that Ottawa has tried to do planning as a national capital region. There's no equivalent of a federal district like in Australia or the United States. And you'd probably need impossible constitutional changes to make a federal district. But you need some kind of sense of national capital police security. And the RCMP are the obvious people to do it. And uh, they they are going to need the authority to be able to do it without without invoking an emergencies act. Let's wrap up with a a, a final question. Um, A common theme in our discussion so far has been the question of uh, polarization and mitigating some of the extreme polarization that we've seen in other societies, including, of course, the United States. Temperatures have been high in recent days. You know, it's it's noteworthy, for instance, that uh, yesterday the the prime minister made intemperate comments in, in the House of Commons. How do we lower the temperature in the aftermath of uh, this experience? How do we ensure that it doesn't set us on a path towards greater polarization? Well, leadership makes a difference, but you can't reanimate Bill Davis. So uh, you don't have that option. I I think Justin Trudeau has used polarization as a tool of power. And that's been true through his, his career. And I think a negative judgment on that and a correction by the society would be helpful. And I think Canadians may also need to reconnect to their own past. I mean, the kinds of things that were said after the discovery of cemetery neglect in Western Canada have led to an attack on the basic decency, the country's basic regard for itself in a way that has been very destructive. Um, so leadership can make make a difference. I think Canada has a lot of the institutions, above all, a solid middle class. And as we come out of the pandemic, we talked about this in our very first dialogue, you know, thinking very hard about how do you preserve Canada as a country of homeowners? Um, How do you ensure that people have savings of their own, not just dependent on a state pension, but they have savings of their own that they want to protect? How do you uh, get the birth rate up so that people have, take a long-term view of what's good for the society, not just what's good for me, but my, I have to think about my children and and grandchildren. Um, A society with a lot of children around is going to have some different attitudes than a society with uh, fewer children around. With the advent of the Charter of Rights, with the advent of a multi-party system, the Westminster model may not 
fit the society as well. And there may be changes you have to think about in, in that regard too. Canada, I, I believe, remains a very healthy society, healthier than many of its equally developed peers. And, and so I don't want to overstate the danger. But as the American example shows, things can get worse. And, and I watched American society during the Tea Party years and thought, well, this is going nowhere good. And then it went nowhere good and it went somewhere worse. And what is the, the Russian joke about this, that the, um, the optimist is the one who says things can't get any worse and the pessimist says, oh, yes, they can. And it's always possible for things to be worse. So it's always the responsibility of people in positions, not just of political, but also cultural authority to say, let's, let's try to get this on a, a better path and get people talking to each other again. Well, there's plenty of food for thought there, David. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of From Dialogues uh, and look forward to catching up in, in a couple of weeks. No doubt we'll have uh, plenty to talk about then. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.